Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? G'day and welcome along to Series 6 of the Howie Games, Episode 71, Part A. If you're listening to Part B and you haven't heard Part A, I'd go back to Part A first. Alrighty, hope you're all fit, firing, smiling and looking forward to the new series. We have got some cracking guests coming your way and cannot wait for you to hear them. But firstly, we have been loving all the feedback on social media at MarkHoward03 as well as at the Howie Games at Hotmail.com. Stories about what the show means to you, lessons you've taken from it, places you have listened which are my favourite, on tractors, down mines, piloting boats, driving trucks, on the way to sport with kids in the gym on overseas adventures. I love hearing about it, so please keep sending them through. Plus, the reviews and ratings on iTunes have been really, really cool and it helps the show spread. So if you could hit that up when you've got a moment, that'd be epic. And if you haven't already, grab someone you love, give them a hug and tell them about the Howie Games. Get them on board. Thank you. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. As per Series 5, the episodes in this series will drop every second Thursday. So Episode 72, Part A and B, will be out on Thursday, July 18. But if you hit subscribe on your device, you will not miss any of the episodes. And don't worry, subscribing doesn't cost a cent. Still free, you'll get every episode. You can do it if you try, try, try. If you try, try, try. Alrighty, episode 71, and it is a two-for-one deal. The idea of the Howie Games right from the start has been to try and take you into the lives of athletes to tell their stories in an open, honest, raw at times and very warm manner and hope that these stories will motivate and inspire you. For mine, this episode featuring Kate and Bronte Campbell is the perfect representation of the aims of this show. The Campbell sisters, the Campbell sisters are two of the most delightful people one could ever meet. They are smiley, happy, bubbly, loud and funny, but they also have an iron will that has helped the girls become world champions in the pool. There's not much this episode doesn't have swimming with hippos a fantail quiz competition, which we've never done before, hard-earned successes, and during the second half of the episode, the brutal nature of professional sport, injury, pain, defeat, and lots of tears as the sisters talk about what happens when a dream shattered. If my children were to grow up and have the grace, the intelligence, the honesty, and the warmth of Kate and Bronte Campbell, I reckon I'd be pretty happy. And there's not much more a father can say than that. Enjoy Kate and Bronte Campbell. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion Welcome to the Howie Games, a double act, Kate and Bronte Campbell. How are you both? Very well, thank Very you. good, thanks. It's great to see the both of you because normally in this situation you're both puffing, I'm at the side of the pool, there's goggles being flung up everywhere, there's hair being done and we're talking about exceptional performances. So. Fortunately no boogers, like no. poor old Ian oh. We, Fortunately not. We did address that in the last episode yeah. with Thorpe. Yeah. I don't know if you listened to it. Um, no, you two are always magnificently presented. Hey, before we get into this, we're at a nice spot in Coogee. 
Bront, you have found your way in the business centre where we are to the fan tales. <laughs> what have you got for us? I think it was the first thing I noticed when I opened, entered the room. All right, well, hands on your buzzers. Okay. Who am I? All right. Born in Scotland in 1956, he moved to Australia in 1961. An apprentice iron smelter whose love for music and to join a... Oh, Okay, it's not quick on the buzzer. And that no. is uh, an achievement for me today. Um, how are you both? Well, I arrived in Sydney yesterday. This won't go to air for a while, but splashed across the front page of the paper, you two. Very good. Talking about this new swimming competition. What's it all about, Bron? ISL. ISL yeah. is, um, it's interesting. It's for us, it just represents a really good opportunity to diversify swimming and make it more interesting, more relevant, and get more competition happening. So basically, as a rundown, FINO is, is sort of like our governing body, and they run all the international competitions. Then ISL is being set up, and um, it's this amazing guy who's got a big love of swimming and some, lots of cash behind him, and he wants to set up a swimming league where you compete in swim teams, so you draft it onto a team, and you all compete against each other. And um, there'll be, I think six competitions to start with and they'll be across Europe and America and short events. So I think it's 200 and under, maybe one 400 meter event and just competing against each other and making it like a, a big fun exhibition. Sort of like we talk about big bash for cricket, mm. um, that sort of idea. So for us, it's super exciting because it means we get to race internationally more. It means swimming becomes more fun and more relevant. And all I want is for it to be a bigger thing because we only ever really see swimming once every four years or once a year if people are really paying attention Absolutely. so so, so it's the, cool. the, the headline out of it was originally if you swim in this you're not going to be going to the olympics <laughs> which was the headline which is the way the media operates well that was true though but it was true so, so, so how did all that play out and, and how was it for you two going through that yeah, well, so there was supposed to be kind of an exhibition meet scheduled for December of last year and FINA, our world governing body, kind of got a wind of this and thought that the ISL was going to be trampling on their turf a little bit mm -hmm. and said if swimmers take part in this because it's not a FINA-sanctioned meet, they risk a ban from either the World Championships this year or the Olympics in 2020. Wow, that's a big stick. Which is a big stick. Um, so in... And well, what I really like about the ISL is that they do put athletes first. So in good faith, they, they cancelled the swimming competition, but they still held a meeting over in London and kind of all the swimmers got in the room and we kind of said, hang on, this is ridiculous. Um, you're, you're, you're taking away opportunities for us to compete, um, to raise revenue for ourselves and to grow the sport of swimming. And we kind of said that we'd band together. And if you banned one of us, then we would all boycott. And, you know, there's some really global superstars who mm. were in that room, you know. The Including likes of the Campbell sisters. <laughs> um, and I think that Fina were just kind of like, oh, can you imagine if there was a world championship with, you know, at the likes of Adam Peaty, who's the British, you know, superstar, um, or Sarah Sorstrom from Sweden. You know, it, it just wouldn't be a world championship. So they've they've removed the, the threat of the ban, which is really exciting. And um, while all times that are swum at the ISL competition will be unofficial, so if a world record is broken, it won't count, um, we're now free to compete, which is really exciting. The, the, the other part you mentioned too was raising revenue. I think you mentioned, Bron, every four years we see you guys, we see the top, top echelon on the cereal packets, on the ads, and we think, wow, these guys are making a lot of money, like our cricketers or our tennis players or our footballers. 
Not the case, especially when you scratch a tiny bit below the surface, unless you're basically the best in the world. It's not an easy way to make a living. So does this assist in that? Yeah, this is um, this is something that's going to be able to keep people in the sport, let cool. people make a living. Lots of swimmers have day jobs as well. They're, they're working part-time and swimming full-time and often trying to study as well. So it's... um. It's, it's not an easy ask, ask to be a swimmer. It's, it's not, like you say, every four years you see mm. the, the, the top people um, advertising for things, but there's, there's 40 people on the team and there's 40 people that deserve recognition or at least to be able to support themselves through to the next four years. So um, it's definitely going to do that. And for us, like coming into, into the back end of your sport, um, we've been around for a, a, a while it's um it's a motivation to keep going because as as you get older and older you're like well then that's when your peers start sort of having their big careers and you're still doing the same sort of thing and and sort of feel like you're falling behind so it's a good opportunity to set yourself up as towards the end of your career as well but it's um i don't know it's just a good opportunity for everyone it's one of life's cruel ironies that the older you get the less fun training gets i I remember being super excited as a kid um to go to training and in school holidays i could train six days a week instead of five and that was like a big thing (laughs) now i'm like oh my gosh please give me saturday mornings off so it it keeps it interesting we get to we get to race um and break up the training because let's face it staring at a black line for four hours a day is not the most mentally stimulating thing you can do with your life do, do you switch off or do you have to because that's the question for everyone that doesn't swim is how on God's name do you turn up at 4.30 in the morning and look at that line for three hours go to the gym and come back and do it again at night time alright so when you're by yourself it's really not oh, that fun so I've done a lot of training by myself in the past year and it's you need a squad <laughs> you don't even have to talk to them that much it just needs to be other people there or you do go a little bit nuts but um, we are thinking about what we're doing most of the time Sometimes more than others. <laughs> it is interesting, though, like once you hit the end of the um, pool uh, in the middle of a set and some of the thoughts that come out, like people just say something and you're like, what were you thinking about during that 400 <laughs> yeah, okay. metres? You've gone a long way from our last conversation. <laughs> um, but, yeah, most of the time we are we are concentrating. But, um, but it's, if, you, if you go for a run and you run in a different spot, like here for me, for Coogee, it's stimulating because it's something different. So you don't think about the fact that you're knackered. Whereas if you're running the same track the whole time, you start to think you're tired, which I presume is the same when you're looking at that line and you start Well, that's why we had to move to Sydney. Right. <laughs> but how different is a black line, whether it's in Queensland or in Sydney? Oh, this one's quite a good one. It's, it's kind of like a dark blue line. It's got a diving end of the pool, so it gets deeper at one point. You know. It's got red tiles that mark the 15 metres. <laughs> Whoa! Yeah. You guys are really going out there, aren't it's you? It's getting wild out there, that's for sure. <laughs> Um, you both walked in here and I was uh, excited to see you and then you flapped me a bit by saying, wow, did we get a question from the pig on the big penguin? There was no um, questions as to what I asked you. So you obviously listen to podcasts and I'm, I'm uh, stoked that you listen to this one, but you listen to podcasts, you're joining the podcast revolution? Oh, I love podcasts. I, I'm much like pioneering the podcast revolution. Right, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Every, everything under the sun um, I listen to. So if anyone has any recommendations, please let me know in some way because I'm always on the hunt for a new one. And now that we're in Sydney, I'm just, I've just decided I'm going to embrace the traffic life yes. and just relax with the podcast. Yes. And yes. then there's no need for road rage. And by the time I get to the place, I've learned something or I've laughed or I've cried and, you know, 
So when are the Campbell sisters starting their own? Because I think people will be evidenced by the first eight and a half minutes of this. I think it'll be an entertaining show. We've thought about it. Actually, we were just chatting about it the other day. We were thinking, like, maybe we could sit down once a week and just talk about the sports stories and give, yes. like, a sports person's perspective on it, which is good, but it's also good to um, show that we've got quite different opinions sometimes. So it'd be mm. a good chat. Anyway, that was... um. That was our idea about a week ago, so we'll see whether that well, gets up and rolling. running. I will promote it on the Howie Games, great vigour yes. and pride. All right, let's go back to the start where this all started because it's not a typical grew up in Queensland started swimming story for you two. It's a very different story, well publicised, but those that don't follow the sport closely wouldn't know it. So firstly, where were you both born? We are born in Malawi. It's Which, a little African country. I've been there. Madon- You've been, been there? I have been there. No one's Why? been there. I've been there. Uh, Travelling through Africa, uh, learnt to scuba dive it in Carter Bay. Oh, great place, yeah. Got malaria in Carter Bay. (laughs) I got malaria there too. (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) Malaria buddies. Um, It was, well, it was, when I was there was, so it was 90... Seven. I remember the roads being the worst of oh, all yeah. I'd seen oh, in Africa, bad, but the yeah. people, the friendliest, outstanding place. 97, we would have still been there then. Yeah, yeah. I have seen you as little tackers swimming around. <laughs> Probably. So how, how did you come to be born in a small African nation bordered by a lake called Malawi? Mum <laughs> um, and dad were South African and they moved to Malawi for work for, you know, a one-year contract and 10 years later they had four kids there. So What was the contract? What was your dad or mum doing? Um, it was dad who was moving for a banking job. He's an accountant. Some oh, sort of yeah. finance related. <laughs> As their eyes glaze over. They're very handy people to have in the family. <laughs> Hello to your dad, who's a proud accountant, while you roll your eyes. My dad's amazing. Um, yeah. And he does my tax. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Long-suffering dad. And, yeah, so we were born there. Um, Which is tremendously adventurous and exciting. It was a great place to be a kid. Yeah. I, I just, I almost, you know, want to have kids there just because, well, the freedom that you get. And also you don't notice the inconveniences. Like, you know, mum would go to the supermarket and the only flour that was on offer was full of weevils. So unbeknownst to us, we just ate weevily cake. Because that's uh, what it was. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, the only milk that would be there would be sour. So you should just have to make something with sour milk. So yeah, as, as a kid, you don't notice those inconveniences and there's just freedom galore. Uh, and we had a wonderful time growing up on the lake. It's where we spent almost every weekend. Our dad um, used to sail catamarans. So we used to go out and mum would, you know, drive the trailer around from place to place while dad would sail huh. along the lake. And um, catamarans like like darts and knackers, not like not oh, like a ship. No, 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 <laughs> right. no, no, okay. no. Little like, like trampolines, little twin trampol- hull racing, sailing sort of how, stuff. How did the catamaran go on the roads of Malawi that I did mention? Where <laughs> the bus driver who'd done the route a thousand times, he'd say, oh, "How long is this going to take, boss?" He'd say, "Oh, an hour, an hour and a half, seven hours later." Yeah. yeah. You think he did this trip yesterday? <laughs> yeah. He knows it takes seven hours, but he's not telling me that. They're, they're very optimistic people. Yes, <laughs> which is one of the great things about the country. So it could take an hour. It right. could take an hour if it was, you know, a tarred road. But it's not so. We've been back there once in 2010. And what and, struck you? Um, well, there was big signs everywhere saying tarred roads and innovation in Malawi. Uh, yes. <laughs> so they're getting better. And, and, and there was the one traffic light in Blantyre was working while we were there, which I'd now, I don't think I'd ever seen it working when, when we lived there. So in 10 years, they, they now have some tarred roads and the one traffic light is what was working for the 
four days that we were there. My memory of it, I don't think it was Blantyre. It could have been a long way. A long long way. And this would be, you two are too young for this, but there was a Carlsberg brewery. And you could do tours. <laughs> okay, we and when you'd been nine months in Africa and had no money, mm-hmm. when someone's advertising a free brewery tour, <laughs> next time you go back, okay. check if it's still going. All right. Well, this is probably a bit controversial, but mm. um, we never did brewery tours, but our dad's company used to um, sell tobacco. So we used to go to like the tobacco, like drying things, they'd dry all the tobacco leaves. Like, obviously never been a smoker, but the smell of like tobacco leaves getting dried is just... So amazing. You'd walk through the warehouses and there's just stacks of these dried up leaves. Probably not a great industry, but (laughs) when I was seven, it seemed magical. You two are asking about the pickle and the penguin. So right near the start, you are going to face the big penguin who is lucky enough uh, the day after the Big Bash finishes. So probably after this has gone to air, he is making his first trip to Africa, which he is very, very, very excited about. Um, all sorts of rumours and innuendo and stories about you two and growing up. I'm not sure what is true, what is not true. <laughs> the penguin wanted to get right to the bottom of it. He's starting with you, Kate. All right. Hi, Kate. Big Penguin here. I've been reading Wikipedia about you, and it said that you swam near a hippopotamus in Africa when you were young. Firstly, I want to know, is this true or false? And also... Got a phone call coming through in the middle of that. Hang on, here we go. Going to Africa soon. Should I swim near hippopotamuses? <laughs> oh wow! Um, <laughs> he was battling his way through Wikipedia. He raised and said, "Dad, I know why she swims so fast. She used to swim with hippos." Well, actually, that is true. Well there done. Was, yeah, yeah. Wikipedia got one right. Um, there was the right where we used to stay on the lake. There was kind of this rogue hippopotamus that used to come um, and he used to eat the lawns at night because they're funny things because they look terrifying but they eat grass but then they're also very vicious and they just like to kill you for fun. Um, yes, so they used to, that's the yeah, downside yeah, of hippos. Yeah, that's, that's the downside of hippos. Um, Wait, you know they can run 40Ks an hour? Yeah. Like they're, they look ridiculous. They don't look like they should be able to do anything other than roll over or something but they're, they're they incredible. Yeah, and normally it would like go away during the day and just come back at night. But um, we were out in a little tinny one day and I jumped off the side and was swimming around. And then next second you just hear this like, whoosh. <laughs> and it was the hippo <laughs> just on the other side of the boat. I got back in that boat very, very, very quickly. Um, yeah, the hippo was, after, it, after that, it um, ate, well, just kind of chomped a few of the villagers. So got relocated to hippo heaven. Right, yeah. so the second part of the question, should the Pro- big penguin jump in somewhere upstream of Victoria Falls where he's going? And well, well, if he can run over 40 k's an hour, <laughs> then probably, go for it. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, maybe stay, steer clear. The other thing that they were both fascinated by, um, this is not about me and my travels this show, this is about you two, but last... <laughs> Yeah, after the Big Bash, we went to Costa Rica and Panama, which is fantastic, and we were staying at a small place where the kids were homeschooled. And my wife and I looked at it and looked at the way these young men were and their view on the world and were blown away. Um, you two were homeschooled? Yeah, yeah, in Africa we were homeschooled. We didn't go to school until we came to Australia in 2001. So do you remember much about that, Bront, or not? You would have been a very, very I young I do. Girl. I was young, but... I mean, I was seven, but you you remember a lot from it. Um, so by your parents? Yeah. Right. Yeah, by our parents. But there was, there was a big community of expat children, so we'd all sort of... We, we had, like, a homeschool um, 
curriculum, curriculum that yeah. got sent yeah. from America. So it was an American one. So I actually did tons of American history, which is pretty hilarious. But um, we did that by ourselves and then we'd all come together with all the other expat kids and do like choir practice or swimming practice or something. Put on a play. Yeah, the choir <laughs> thing wasn't really my forte. Really? <laughs> so can't really? Um, <laughs> any sort of choral work that you want to reflect on and give us a go on the Howie Games or not? No, I don't, okay. think, I don't think anyone needs to hear that. Be a nice combination, you two, together. I'm pretty sure the microphone would break. That's one of the good things, actually. You know when we're um, you know, on the podium and you're singing the national anthem oh. and some... I think Kate got a tweet once being like, oh, you look like you're a really good singer. I was like, how can someone look like they're a good singer? It's just good that there's no microphones there because we are awful, but we always so sing bad. super loud. So it's um, it's a bit of fun, but I'm glad there's no mics Yeah, we, we learned to project, just not in tune. Right. <laughs> what are your memories of being schooled in that way as a youngster? Yeah, my, so mum, we used to... It was amazing how much work you could get done when you, it's just kind of one-on-one or mum used to, you know, one-on-three because mum used to teach me and Bronte and then one of our younger sisters as well. Um, and we, we'd have to do lessons in the morning and then we could play in the afternoon. And I can remember just having meltdowns over maths and, mm. like, I wasn't allowed to leave my desk until I'd figured out the maths equations and there were so many tears and little smarty pants Bronte would finish her work and be out <laughs> playing and then, like, she'd come and stick her head around and be like, are you done yet, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, no, I'm trying to do long division. <laughs> it was good, though, when you came to Australia and then... um. We obviously went to school for the first time. We were quite far ahead of where yep. everyone else was just because the things that you're good at, you get, and then you move on quickly and you can go to the next phase because it's just you. And then the things that you don't get, you can spend all the time working on them. So it was it was definitely good when we were young. But um, Yeah, little grammar Nazi Bronte corrected her, um, <laughs> corrected her grade three teacher <laughs> about, gone about, well. about adverbs. <laughs> yeah, she didn't like that. <laughs> You know what I'm stoked about is, Kate, that you and I, in a weird way, have both sat next to Lake Malawi, me doing a diving course, trying to figure out the dive tables, thinking I can't do these maths, and you're obviously the same. Oh, just horrifically bad. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's just not something my brain does. No. I try really hard, but it just doesn't stick. <laughs> we won't talk to Smarty Pants over there. Yeah, no, Smarty Pants, Smarty Pants numbers girls over here. It's I'm just... not actually that good at maths. <laughs> in comparison, it's just a lot better, though. So my bar is pretty low. <laughs> Why the move to Australia? That's, it's funny, you talk to people. It's a massive move. I'm a parent now, so I've got kids your age. So imagine if I said to my kids tomorrow, right, we're living, moving to Malawi. We did think about Costa Rica, but that's slightly mm-hmm. different. But it's a massive move for your parents, isn't it? It's huge. Our mum and dad came over. They had four kids under nine, nine, seven, five, and three. Wow. And mum was seven months pregnant with the fifth. And wow. they came over, dad didn't have a job, and they knew one other person. And they had one phone number of a friend of a friend. <laughs> no job, no car, no place to live. So why were they doing it? So our brother, who is the fourth one? Yeah. Yes, Hamish, yep. um, had cerebral palsy. And mm-hmm. uh, he had cerebral palsy because of a very traumatic birth. So he was a stillborn. And there's just no medical services in Malawi that can cater for that. So kind of um, he was airlifted to South Africa sort of within hours of his birth. And um, mum had had a a few complications later on in the pregnancy, which in retrospect needed to be um, fixed up. And so when 
Abigail, the surprise, came along. Uh, they, you, I think they'd talked about moving to Australia for a while, but I think that when, when mum fell pregnant with Abigail, they just thought it's, it's not safe to have another child here. So hightailed it to Australia. So Abigail, the youngest, was actually born in Australia. So you went to Brizzy? Yes. Yeah, we went via Melbourne. Um, do you remember? Dad's, did yeah, the trip, was remember. it an exciting trip? Was it a scary trip? Were, were you speaking Afrikaans at home? No, no. we weren't. We always spoke English. Right. And actually in Malawi, Chichewa is the local language. Right. So um, we what weren't. What was the local language? Chichewa. Do you remember any? Mulibwanji. Um, Kaino. Mm. <laughs> right, which means? Pelive Endalama. <laughs> Pelive Endalama is no money. Is that no money? <laughs> I shouldn't have had that phrase when I was yeah. also in, in Malawi. Pelive Endalama. Which we used to say as kids, because like the street kids would come up to you and they'd be kind of harassing you a bit. You just go, Pelive Endalama. Right, right. <laughs> no <is> money. That... <laughs> um, kids are very adaptable though, but obviously you're getting on a plane, you're going somewhere you've never been, you've obviously spent time in Malawi, which compared to Australia, very, very, very different place. I think it's so full, different. Full credit to our parents. Yeah. We just thought it was this huge adventure. Um, and talking to mum now, because obviously we moved from Brisbane to Sydney, and that's quite stressful. And I was just talking to mum and how stressful it must have been for her to move. Oh. And we did not pick up on it. We thought that this was this wonderful new adventure that oh, we were I'm just going on. The flight. Which I'm doing with two kids in about three Oi. weeks. It's like, wow, what pills can we give them? I'm only joking. About that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it must have been a tremendously challenging period. For them, I'm sure it was, but for us it was quite fun. And um, then we got here and obviously Australia's just oh, unbelievably so different. different. When we first got here, you know the garbage truck that comes and picks up the bins? Yes. And, okay, that's like gross and smelly. Every single Monday we used to go watch it because we'd never seen anything like this. We used to wake like up at 6am and like sit outside and watch the rubbish bins being <laughs> emptied into the bin. Because it was just like, it was mesmerising. We'd never seen anything like that and the roads were clean. We were like, people aren't locking up here. In um in South Africa, where our grandparents lived, we used to visit them a lot. There where was, in South Africa? Um, in Joburg. Okay. There was one house that didn't have a big fence around it. And we used to call it the house with no fence. Yeah. And we used to go to go drive past it and look at it. Um, and then we came to Australia and like, literally no house has a wall around it. We couldn't believe it. People were leaving things on the street. It wasn't getting stolen. Everything was clean. We went to um, South Bank in Brisbane. We're like, what is this facility? How is this happening? <laughs> it was all just mesmerizing to us. So as kids were sort of very starry eyed when we got here, it was, um, it was pretty special. First days of school, you probably remember them more, I would have thought, Kate. That's, that's when it gets tricky for kids, first day. First day, and first day at school ever. Uh, yeah, I, I yeah, can of course. Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd never been in a school, so I, I can remember being incredibly nervous. And I mean, I, I already kind of stick out because I'm like very tall and I was like pale and gangly because I just spent all my time outdoors. So I was like pale and freckly and gangly. Um, and I had this weird South African accent and all I wanted to do and all any kid wants to do is to fit in. And uh, so the only thing I could change was my accent. So I now <laughs> speak with an Australian accent much more than a South African accent. Um, but yeah, I, I remember it being really, really scary. Um, I was very, very awkward socially, as I think all kids are. And, um, but everyone was really lovely and it, t it takes a while to, to get used to it. And there were a few tears as there always are, but I, I've, I found it like a, a little group of misfits who I fitted in well with. And yeah, it's, it's, 
it's been going well so where, far. Where does swimming start in this whole story, bro? Swimming was always there. I mean, in Malawi, it's it's, it's quite tropical. There's the wet and dry season, yep. and it's just hot all year. That's it. So um, there wasn't really any aircon. Um, power was intermittent. So swimming was just what we did. We always did it. We were always in the swimming pool. Um, Mum used to teach all the local um, expat kids swimming lessons. So she was a synchronized swimmer for South Africa. Was she? So, really? Yeah, she was. Yeah. But it was uh, it was wow. during apartheid. So ah. South Africa was banned from all international competitions. So huh. she she couldn't compete at a Commonwealth or an Olympic Games. But she did qualify for the South African national team, and she still has um, her full tracksuit and uh, some of her medals, which we used to look at as kids, which is really exciting. So mum mum used to hold swimming lessons in our backyard swimming pool and actually teach synchronized swimming at the local high school, huh. um, and we used to join in with that because. We had the choice of we either sat on the side of the pool while she taught or we could join in the class. It was pretty harsh, though. I mean, mm. I was probably about six and Kate was eight. And we were training with the high school kids. And she was like, you either keep up and don't complain or you get out. Hardcore. So, <laughs> <high cool. laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we learned we had to keep up pretty quickly. But um, And then just before we moved to Australia, it was 2000 and the Olympics were on. I remember watching them and we knew we were about to move to Australia. So it was, we were watching out for the Australians. I remember watching like Grant Hackett just in that 1500. I was just watching with like these, you know, those big kid eyes that they get when they see something that's inspirational. I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. I'm going to swim 1500 for Australia. <laughs> that was the spark, was it? That was it. But um, uh, very soon after starting swimming, I realized I didn't want to swim 1500 meters. <laughs> a lot of laps. So many laps. <laughs> <laughs> I want to train for that. I don't want to do that. And I'm, would be terrible at it, by the way. Um, so you were the driving force early days? Oh, very yeah, much. Yeah, so I, I loved it and um, I was obsessed. Once we got here, we joined the local swim club, which was just down the road from the um, where we were renting. And I used to get up about an hour early and walk myself to the pool and go and watch the big kids train because I thought, this is surely going to make me better. And then I'd train for um, an hour or so. I was only seven. Um, I wanted to do two sessions a day, but both mum and my coach said, At seven. Uh, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> That's reasonably good parenting, that, I would have thought. They said there are no seven-year-old Olympic champions, so just calm down. You've got a few more years to go. But I was um, I was completely obsessed with it right from when I was young. And when you're young, you don't even think that it's a big thing. You think, oh, yeah, of course I'm going to go to the Olympics for swimming. Because there was a big, there's a little group of all us kids, and that's all what we used to talk about. Oh, after I go to the Olympics, this is what I'm going to do. Um, which was quite nice for mum and dad because they never told us that we couldn't do it, which was a big part of it. They never said, that's going to be a really hard thing to do. Um, maybe you should have a plan B. They were like, okay, great. If you're going to do it, huh. go on, be free, do it, and, and see how far it gets you. And um, uh, What were you doing, Lazy Bones? Oh, yeah, I took a little while <laughs> to get around to the whole Olympic ideal. Um, right. I suffer from this uh, chronic disease called laziness. <laughs> It's really bad. Um, I thought we were getting serious for a moment yeah. then. <laughs> oh, no. It's, and, like, I, I go through spates of, like, it being really, really chronic, and then I get better at it. Um, when we moved to Australia, it was, I, was, I was in a lull, a pretty bad right. time. Um, so while Bronte used to get up, like, an hour early and go to training, I used to... Mum used to get me out of bed and be like, okay, Kate, you need to go to training now. And I used to roll in and just do the bare minimum. Um, I, I can remember like swimming to the flags and then just thinking that it was too far to swim, the extra five metres into the wall and the five metres out. So why didn't I just turn around to the flags? It seemed like a reasonable thing. I used to let people lap me so that 
I could like do fewer laps. Um, and, but the problem was that I was training with Bronte, who not only knew how many laps she's done, she knows how many laps you've done as oh, well. She's a mathematician so, over there. So, I can count. <laughs> I'd like hit the wall and be like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to stop now. And I put my head up and Bronte would tap me on the head and be like, um, excuse me, you've got two more laps. <laughs> So they come off looking like a really horrible goody t-shirt. <laughs> she was. Um, and, then, and then we went to our first swimming carnival and um, Bronte won every 25 metre. So we were just swimming 25 metres. All her 25 metre races and got four golds and an age champion trophy. I got bronze for the 25 metres backstroke, which I wasn't that unhappy with. Like I still got something to wear around my neck. However, Bronte used to wear her medals around her neck at home. I love this. I love this. And then clink together. Like, you know, the clinking that they make. So you'd hear her coming down the corridors. And she used to bring, I'm not lying, she used to bring her trophy to the dinner table and like just position it. Like like Nadal positions his water bottles. She'd used to position her trophy like next to her glass of water. So I just say like, I was seven and this is the only time in my life I've ever done any of those things. No, I like it. Continue, Kate, please. And so I I did what any, you know, self-respecting nine-year-old whose younger sister has beaten them and is rubbing them rubbing it in her face. I stole her medals and her trophy. Fantastic. Yeah, of course I did. Um, and I hid them under my bed. It wasn't the most original hiding spot. They were found very quickly. And mum kind of sat me down and she said, Kate... Bronte's worked really hard for those. Um, and if you want what Bronte has, you're going to have to work hard because I've seen you. You don't train very hard. You're pretty lazy. And you either need to just accept that this is, you know, Bronte's achievement and be happy for her, or you need to start working hard if you want to win some of your, your own. And I was like, oh, man, really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> the gold medals looked so shiny. So I decided that I wanted to work hard. Um, and Bronte wanted to go f- to the Olympics and for lack of imagination, I decided that if you can't beat them, join them. So, yeah, I, I guess that from then I decided that I-, I looked at, you know, the joy that it brought Bronte and the fact, I think, that I'd seen her work really hard to get them. Whereas, you know, I kind of looked at my bronze medal and was like, oh, yeah, pretty happy. Mm. But where Bronte looked at these and was so proud of them. <laughs> Necessarily Possibly proud. a little bit too proud of her, <laughs> let's be honest. But I, I think that, you know, looking back, there was something that I wanted to be proud of something as well. So, yeah, from that moment, poor mum had two Olympic hopeful wow. swimmers on her hands, which is a lot for any parent. We can skip around this podcast, which is the best thing about it. You will have been asked this question a thousand times in a thousand different ways. I want you to answer separately. And Are you going to say something about rivalry? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's the question that is so obvious and you've been asked it so many times. Um, I was talking to Elise Perry the other day and she was for the show and she was talking about being asked when she was going to decide which sport mm. and she would go into almost a political answer because she had her answer and she didn't really think about it. The delight of you two, as is evidenced in 25 minutes here, is you seem so close. You finish each other's sentences. You're like an old married couple. You look at each other to see when one is going to finish talking, the other one picks up. What is it actually like competing against your sister, who is typically, for you two, the one person you have to beat to win that gold medal that you're talking about, Kate? Start with 
you, Bronte. Be as honest as you can. Yeah, it's, it's, I understand why people think it's a weird dynamic, but seeing as we started from where we were as kids, that's, that's what gives a bit more understanding to it because we used to sit in the back of the car together and talk about on the way to swimming, like what we were going to do at the Olympics, what we were going to do after we'd been to the Olympics. And it was a very much a shared dream. We were like, oh, we could be like two sisters in the Olympics. It was, it was, a, it was a really big deal for us. And, um, and I mean, at that time we were doing different events as well. We were doing different events. So, we, I mean, Kate was a breaststroker, I was a backstroker when we were kids. And then we sort of ended up in freestyle through various um, circumstances. Mine was, I got rubbish at backstroke. Right. So, <laughs> um, everyone else got better and I didn't anymore. But yeah, then it was always it was always a shared dream from the beginning. So that sort of brings a little bit of light onto it. But if you think about it, when, when you're in the moment and you're, in, say, an Olympic final, if there's anybody in that race who you want to do well, who's not you, you want it to be a sister. Of course you do. So it's not... It's not even about competing against each other. And there's, there's so many different ways of, of doing well. I know, I know everyone wants a gold medal and everyone who's standing up in that race is trying to win. But we're lucky in swimming you've got an objective measure as well as you've got, you've got a time mm. and you've got um, how your race has panned out. You've got, you've got so many ways to measure success. So it's, um, it, it's about trying to win, but it's not always about, it's not always about beating each other. And, and there's no way I'm ever standing up behind the blocks thinking, oh, I want to beat Kate. I'm not thinking I want to beat anyone. I'm thinking um, purely about myself. As soon as you start thinking about beating other people, I think you've really lost the race um, or lost the point of it at the very least. So, so it's so always been beautiful for us. It's always been so nice for us to have the other person there and share that moment. Not many people get to share that with anyone that they're close to and I get to share it with my sister. So it's a really, it's like, I can see how it seems like it would be a hard thing but it's the easiest thing. Oh, it does seem like a hard thing. The first two Australians to compete in an Olympic final together in the same event, a couple of examples off the top of my head. Um, one with the World Championships in Kazan, 2015. Mm. You're the world record holder, you get beat by your sister. Commonwealth Games, again, in the 100, you get beat by your sister. You turn around, you look up there, and you've come second, and you've done everything you can to come first. There's no part of you, Kate, that thinks... Ah, bugger. Of course there is. Right. Everyone wants to win. Yeah. That's human nature. And we're very, very competitive people. You, you don't get into sport if you're not competitive. But like Bronte said, if there was one other person who you'd, you'd want to beat you, it's your sister. Like, and you can't win everything. You know, the, no one wins everything. Even Usain Bolt didn't win every race he ran in. Um, and... I know that I wouldn't be the swimmer that I am today if I didn't have Bronte there to push me and to push me every day in training. Um, I, I think that we bring out the best in each other in and out of the pool. <laughs> and I, I think it's, it's been a, a real credit to our parents in that they never made us compete against each other. It was never about competing against each other in anything in life. We, and, 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 it was the, and it's the same with, you know, the five kids in the family. So we're two of five children, um, which I think can be hard if you're, you know, one of the other three and you have two Olympic uh, sisters. It was about achieving your best. And, and, and what's that for you? And for, for me and Bronte, it's going to an Olympic Games for... Uh, 
you know, our younger sister, it's about achieving an A in English. And all of those things are achieved and recognized, but we were never played off against each other. There was never this competitive dynamic when you sat down at the dinner table and you played who's the favorite child or who's (laughs) who's achieved the most. And I think that that's really helped. Um, You know, it's, we we, we go out there and we compete and we want to get the best out of ourselves. Um, and of course, of course, you want to win. I'm, I'm not. I'm not about to sit here and say that you don't no, want to no win. No one who's in sport gets into a race and says, "Oh, wouldn't it be great if I came fourth? <laughs> no. But I think that the point is that so many sisters, brothers, brothers and sisters out there, they obviously grow up. Everyone has different relationships. Mm. They would want nothing more than to beat their sister or their brother. Whereas you two. Never seem to and have that. And I think it's that. because we've never competed against each other. Yeah, we never have. I mean, such as maybe Mario Kart. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> Mario Kart. Who comes out on top there? I am better at that. Um, it's true. <laughs> right. So this is the only time we see dummy speech in the yeah. Mario Kart. Yeah. I can, Throw I can, down that remote. I can live with that. Storm out of the room. <laughs> Campbell sisters aren't perfect. I'm happy no. with that. I'm happy with that. I'm happy with that. No, but I, I do see how it is a weird dynamic. And it I do is. See, and I... I see that, but having grown up with it, it sort of evolved quite naturally into being something that's quite normal for us. And of course, as you said before, you look up, um, you've come second, you wanted to win. Mm. There is that moment where you're like, oh man, but you'd much rather it was Kate that beat you than someone from America or Sweden, Mm -hmm. just as you'd much rather it was your countryman that was doing well than someone else. And the closer you get together, the, the, the less it hurts to be beaten by someone. Um, not not the more it hurts. If, if it's someone completely distanced from you, you um, it's quite easy to hate them, and I'm quite good at that. But um, <laughs> but when it's someone that's close to you, it's um, it's it's sort of bittersweet. You're disappointed, but you've also got this elation for them as well. It's 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 good to see people that you love doing well. It's, I mean, that's a pretty simple thing that everyone understands. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's a good what, way basically to what it boils down to. So the Olympics, this dream that was furnished in, in Carter Bay in in Malawi, <laughs> Kate, you've been to three. Beijing, yes. London, London and Rio. Rio. Bron- yeah. You've been to Rio and London. and London, so you've been to the last two. So you're the first to experience it. Before we get into your Olympic experiences, which have been full of highs and lows, like most athletes, um, describe to me, I'll start with you, Bron, as it was your dream, in 50 words or less, what it's like to be competing at the Olympics. Um, I think... I could describe it in about two words, which mm. is exceeds expectations. <laughs> wow. And you, Kate? It, my first memory of an Olympic Games was just, it was bigger than I imagined. Right. I remember I was, I'd just turned 16 at the first Olympic Games, but it was bigger than I imagined. Yeah. Everything mm. about it. My memories of you at that time um, was you were thinner than thin. <laughs> And was a, I, she was a bean pole. Yeah, you, yeah. you were. You were <laughs> yeah. thinner than thin and you looked... You're obviously in a race against big, strong women, the yeah, 50 I'm, and I'm the 100 freestyle. So, yeah. yeah. And you just had a completely different physique to everyone you were swimming against. If you lined you all up and said you'd look at the tall skinny girl and think, well, she's going to snap in half Bruce Reed style on the 12th yeah. man. I'm not sure if you <laughs> can understand that, but it was physically she's not going to be able to compete with these girls. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I was. I was. I was a little sixteen-year-old. You know, I, I wasn't. I hadn't matured early. I was. I remember being. You know, I was pimply and gangly. Puberty and hadn't come for me. Puberty yet. hadn't come for me. Look, it, it was. It was. 
not kind to me while I was in the midst of it. But, um, and I, I think that, you know, I, this goes back to our coach, um, which who's the reason that we've moved to Sydney. So he's been our coach, now. Simon Cusack, for, um, we've been with him for 17 years. So he was, he was that first coach, that first swimming pool that we walked into when we moved to Australia. So he's known us since we're seven and nine years old. <laughs> um, he's a pretty revolutionary guy. Um, and he, uh, he was always on to us about technique. And I think that um, you know, you, you can muscle over the water or you can work with it. And I think he taught us to work with it. And so kind of helped tall gangly me. Um, I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm, I'm really muscly and I'm filled out, um, come through the other side of puberty. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I think that it was, it was just, it was all those years of drills that I just thought were fun, but that really made a difference. And technically we're both very good swimmers because of it. Yeah. How's he revolutionary? Um, he just, he looked at swimming and he looked at if you wanted to swim 50 and 100 meters, why are you swimming six or seven Ks a session? And why are you practicing training at a pace that is so unspecific to your race? So why do I want to be able to swim 100s in 110 when, when I'm racing, I want to be swimming them in 52 seconds? So how do we train that specifically? How do we work on those? And I think that he just got, actually, he just got really bored when he used to give everyone long sets, <laughs> which is more to the point. And so he's like, okay, how can we mix this up? And, and how can we make sure that when you go and you stand behind the block, that you're fit at your race pace, you're not fit at this unspecific. And of course you need an aerobic base and we do do that, but we do a lot more race specific training. Well, especially for the time when he first started doing it, people thought he was absolutely crazy. But we used to stand up on, we knew it was coming on Monday afternoon and we had 10.50s max on the 1.30, which doesn't sound that hard. But if we were not within 0.5 of our PB in the first one, so basically as fast as you can swim on race day, 0.5 is, is it's nothing, um, then you went in the far lane and you did 2100s on the 130, which is so boring. So everyone wanted to be fast and everyone knew they had to step up and perform, which means you're at your race stroke rate, you're at your race pace, and you know exactly what that feels like. So as soon as you dive in for 100 meters or 50 meters, you've done that a million times. Like why, why would we be training at the 2100s pace for the majority of our training time? So. That's sort of what he started with us when we were kids as well. It also taught us to stand up and race under any circumstance, like, because you did not want to be doing those 2100s. Yeah. So lots of people, you know, we're, we're typically quite good in-season races. Like even at the smaller competitions, we can stand up and post really good times. And people say, how do you do that? And it's simply because right from when we were really young, we were taught that we have to race no matter what. Uh, one of his favorite sayings was, oh, it doesn't matter how you feel, it only matters what you do. <laughs> Seriously, I've that so many times. If only the people who are listening could see you two rolling your eyes as you said that. But um, actually, it's, he's not wrong. <laughs> it's, very, it's very true, and it's something that I'm grateful for in retrospect. All right, we're talking training. Now it's your turn to face the hard questions from my nine-year-old daughter. Yes. You get the pickle. You're the pickle. far more excited by her questions than mine. All right, here's for you, Bron. Hi, Bronte. Pickle here. I want to be a triathlete when I get older. But when we do training... In Victoria, the water's really cold. It's so hardcore. What's the most hardcore thing you do in training? Ooh, 
I did not know where that was question was going from the start. Um, hardcore. To her, to hardcore. her, hardcore is jumping in the local river slash ocean in late August when there's a southerly blowing and it's about 13 degrees out and about 12 in the water. Uh, no. Yeah, okay. Well, that is hardcore because the coldest I've ever been was in Melbourne when we had to swim in an unheated pool and... It's scarred me for life. So that is pretty hardcore. What's the hard, most hardcore oh, thing we do in training? The, just the sheer volume of training to me when I see you guys is what blows my mind. I mean, that, but most people do that. So that's, I mean, not most people. Most swimmers do that. Most people do a, a lot. Most swimmers are doing a lot and, quite frankly, doing more Ks than we do. Um, the most hardcore thing we do, which is, <laughs> it's going to sound so pathetic to people, but no. we have this set, which is 450s. It's now only 450s max on the two minutes. And that doesn't sound like you should be hurting at the end of it, but we measure lactate. So lactate is how many millimoles of lactate acid they are per, what, litre of, um, or 100, millimol- 100 millilitres of blood. You measure it just by an ear prick. So that's like that burning sensation. That's your lactate acid, like clearing from your muscles into your blood. And if you can get like a 16 lactate, that's, that's pretty high. Um, once you get to 24 the machine doesn't register anymore. And after doing that set, <laughs> we, we get to, we break the machine. <laughs> break the machine? Well, you don't break it, but it just, it just it, can't, it can't, it can't read it anymore. It just says HI, which I don't know what that means. High. Too right. high. <laughs> too, too, too high for the machine. Too high. Wow. So we, we don't do that often, but um, that is the most amount of pain we ever get to in training. That's um, you are 100% going to go vomit in the bathroom i'm i'm a bit of a vomiter myself i quite often retch in the gutters and stuff okay it doesn't really get that in the pool yeah well i try i get to the side and just be on the side because it's a bit gross in the pool but um okay it doesn't really get that as much but it's like i get it all in my stomach straight afterwards as it's clearing but that is the most gut-wrenching set in in every case you get up the next morning you're like everything's heavy and sore and um, that is the most amount of pain I think I'm ever going to be in in the pool. No race is ever going to come close to that, and that's how we do it. Back to Kate and Bronte, the legends, in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, Thursday, July 18. Can't tell you who the guest is, but trust me, it is going to be a cracker, so keep an eye out for it. Remember, subscribe. You can't miss it. All right, back to the sisters. So uh, along those lines, because I'm fascinated by it, the, the amount of work that you guys put in, I obviously am lucky enough to deal with a lot of athletes. Tell me briefly, don't go through every session, but tell me briefly in your words, Kate, in hard training, a typical day, when does it start? What are you eating? When do you finish training? And I presume you just go home and collapse. Yeah, so we, we kind of, we, we structure our weeks and cycles. So in a week we'll do nine swim sessions, three gym, two spin bike and two Pilates. So we have like, um, a two swim Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then um, a big combined gym, swim, spin, Pilates on uh, Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. So, what time's the swim session? So, start? Um, at the, in Pimble, we'll be starting at six thirty in the okay. morning. So, not that bad. We did do twelve years of five a.m. in the water. So, what time's your alarm go off for that? Uh, as long with, late as possible. As late as possible. <laughs> we, we've always lived quite close to our swimming pool. So, okay. you know, quarter past four, 4.30 to get up, get to the pool, do a few stretches and then dive in. Wow. Um, so, yeah, we did that all through school, <laughs> which I'd, I, I, 
It's maybe why I was not so great at maths. <laughs> You'd be sleeping. <laughs> yeah. We're at 5 to 7 in the morning and 5 to 7 at night, which is, I mean, you're leaving home at 4.30 and then you're getting home at 7.30 at night. That's a long day. It is. I honestly don't think I could do that now. No. You need childhood energy for that sort of stuff. And what, and what about calories and, and, and intake? Then, yeah, so uh, I, I, just, I just need to eat frequently. Like we're kind of coming up to three hours since I last ate, so Uh-oh. I'm starting to get a little bit well, hungry. Yeah, out the way yeah, forward. Yeah, I'm happy to take you on in that competition <laughs> as many times as you want, Jimmy Barnes. <laughs> so, <And> I, like, <laughs> oh god! <laughs> we should put a video on Kate. She got <laughs> she such a fright. <laughs> she did. So Kate okay, gets frightened really easily. Um, I'm gonna put together a little compilation sometime for right. them, but. Um, it doesn't have to be anything. It could just be, hey, Kate, and she goes to fright. I've never seen anyone startle. Yeah, when, like when we used to live together and it was just the two of us, I'd be cooking in the kitchen and front would be like, hey, Kate. <laughs> oh, so apart, I didn't realise you were there. Apart from the fantails, are you mega healthy eaters? Um, or? No. Oh, I'm, right. so, I'm so strict in every, most other areas of my life that if I had to weigh my food or count my calories, mm. it would just suck the joy out of life. So I always eat before training. I usually have like a bowl of cereal and then come back and have eggs and something, an avocado and toast, something really substantial. Um, and it's pretty much just eating when you're hungry. Um, and eating good things. I mean, like yeah. most, of, most of the time we're making our own food and stuff. I mean, the more you eat out, the more you're not really in control of what you're eating, which is fine as well, because I want to be able to go out with my mates and have a burger at Betty's Burgers or whatever they have here. Um, so it's, it's, it's more about eating enough food and frequently and most of it being good. Yeah, most, it. most of it that you've, it's, it's really, yeah. I, I, I wish I could give you like some secrets. No, no, that's but I'm also the laziest cook. Like, if, if it has more than eight ingredients, I don't want to cook it because I don't want to go buying all the ingredients and I don't want to chop them all up. Mm. If I, seriously, least amount of effort possible and I'll, I'm fine. And lots of protein, obviously yeah. good for us and, and muscle building and then carbs are great when we're training, but not so much when you're having time off. So what's the biggest, that's it. <laughs> what's the biggest in getting up and training and doing all these things each individually? I don't know if you would look at it as a sacrifice, but... From where I'm looking, you're sacrificing things to do what you want to do and live your dreams. What's the biggest sacrifice for you, Bron? Mm, Is it a food or a time or friends or sleep or I a don't sacrifice life? sleep. I make sure I prioritise sleep. <laughs> As in an ideal day when you're training the two sessions, um, you go home and you sleep. Um, and that's not because you can't get through the day without it. That's because if you don't do that, you're not going to be at your best that afternoon. So I prioritize sleep over everything else. But yeah, it is, it's, it's quite an isolating thing. You're, um, you're doing something that's different to what anyone else is doing. Everyone's working in the middle of the day. You've got the middle of the day free and then you're exhausted by the end of it. So it's, it's very different to what everyone else does. And particularly when you're younger, now as you're, as you're older, it's people are, mm, I don't know, a bit more flexible, and mm. but when, especially when you're younger, um, everyone else doesn't know what they want to do. No one's got a lot of drive, and well, not no one, but most 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 of your school friends, and they don't really know what they want to do. They want to go to uni. Mm. They want to go to parties, and um, it's a very isolating thing from that because you you're not having any part of that. So particularly when you're younger, it's it's a very um, it's now as we're older I think people appreciate it a bit more and they're a lot more inclusive and understanding of um, where you can spend your time which isn't often with them yeah I, I would agree it's socially it's it's just little things in that 
we don't get public holidays. We train every Today's weekend. a public holiday. Today is a public holiday. And, and yeah, we, we, we never get public holidays. Um, Me neither. I didn't know it was until I texted you saying, yeah. hey, I just <laughs> realised it's a public holiday. Public we're holiday. like, ah, we're fine. Yeah. Um, yeah you're talking to athletes or people <laughs> yeah. at work and media. They don't, they, they don't no. get public holidays. Um, but even, I, yeah, I, I think that that was that was probably the biggest sacrifice, especially like Bronte said, when, when we were younger. And I was very very driven as as a young kid and i um and people would say oh you know just just come out just this once i'd be like no i i have to go to training and i have to do these things uh, and so after a while people just stop inviting you and even if you can't go it's still nice to be invited mm-hmm. uh and but i i think that as the years have gone on as people's lives get busier as well you know where they're not just going out or going to uni when they have jobs and other hobbies and things that that they are more understanding but yeah it's it's, it's a sac well, we're saying a sacrifice but we're just it's saying it's, it's a, yeah it's a hundred percent a choice i mean you um i think who said that to me first i, th- I think um who said that i can't even remember who's um the high jumper stark what's his first name brandon brandon, brandon. that's his name Sorry, Brandon. Um, <laughs> we had a good chat, but um, I think he was the first person that said it like that to me. I was like, "That's a good, that's a good um, way to look at it because yeah. it is a choice, and we choose it, and we choose it a million times over." Um, the experiences that we've got to have are pretty incredible, and we chose to have them, and we chose to let the other ones lie. Which is, I mean, your life is it's just full of choices. That's that's all your life is. It's just which choices you make, and um, I don't regret any of mine. So. All right, so we get to the Olympics, and I've actually had to write some stuff down because normally my memory's pretty good, but when you're dealing with two freaks oh, with world records yep. and there's all sorts going on here. Kate, mm-hmm. first Olympics for you, 2008, Beijing. Mm-hmm. Bronze in the 50 metre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think probably uh, Lib Triggett would have been the superstar then. Would she? Yeah, she she actually came fourth. So Britta Steffen, uh, Germany won. Yep. And then Dara Torres, who was 42, got second. Oh. And then me at 16 got third. So... Yeah, it was a pretty interesting medal podium. Dara Torres, she was Dara at like Torres. at like thirty eighth Olympics, wasn't she? She. I think like, I think like it was like her fourth or, Olympics. Yeah, yeah, crazy. yeah. and uh, she she kind of she had a baby, came out of retirement, and at forty two managed to silver, which is very very impressive. I don't want to gloss over it, but we won't have time to go mm-hmm. through it all. So we get to two thousand and twelve. Mm-hmm. You've both qualified for the Olympics. Yes, because that was back when Channel 10 had the rights. So I remember yes. you guys jumping out of the pool and it's like, wow, you're the first sisters. You, um, you'll be competing in the same event. What what was it like being at the Olympics for you for the first time, Bron, in London? Because you'd been the one driving this dream. <laughs> yeah, well, at the beginning, um, it was it was probably a lot easier for me than most people's first Olympics. Olympics, Olympics are. Um, I had case experiences from 2008 to draw on, which I'd obviously heard about, but I was also rooming with Kate and competing with her. And there was pretty much no aspect of where I was going to be going that um, Kate wasn't there and explaining how everything works, which is um, pretty daunting when you first step onto the national team. So for me, it was probably, um, it was a lot easier than most people's first Olympics. And it was incredible. I loved um, every second of it. It was a pretty challenging Olympics because um, the first night was incredible. The, the girls got up in their four by 100 freestyle and they were, what, a second and a half, two seconds behind on paper. The Dutch team were the world record holders and they were 100% going to win and Australia was going to compete for a place. And then every single girl got up and just did the swim of their lives. Everyone did their job 
as well as they could have and the Dutch team fell apart and they ended up with the first gold medal of the of the meet on night one and we were in the stands everyone's losing it everyone's Kate so excited was, Kate was swimming Kate was, swimming. Kate was um, second swimmer there and she took them from I think thirds um, like within 0.02 of being first and then um, Brit and Mel finished it off which was incredible so watching that on the first night to me was just like you know the stars in your eyes again yeah. it's just incredible um, and then I didn't compete until the very last day so I had another six days of trying to like keep the emotions a bit under control. Um, I actually got banned from going to the pool. Well, not banned, but my coach told me I wasn't allowed to go anymore because I was getting like way too into the cheering and so excited for every race. He's like, you've got seven days until your race. You need to calm down. You're using up all your energy. Um, but that's obviously a tough week because two days later, Kate woke up um, with excruciating pain and cool. vomiting um, with, what was it again? Pancreatitis. Pancreatitis. <laughs> so this is before the 100? So, yeah, this is a couple of days after the relay. And I kind of, I remember not feeling great going to bed and then waking up, must be five o'clock in the morning with just like excruciating pains radiating through like my stomach and back. And I kind of stumbled out to the bathroom and vomited. And then I think I passed out. And Bronte kind of came out and like heard the thud as I hit the floor and saw me lying on the ground and I was like, pale and sweating and she had to run for the medic wow. <laughs> at five o'clock in the morning um, and then being pancreatitis which is such a bizarre thing to get so that was obviously then this weird disruption in the middle of the week kate couldn't do her 100 freestyle somehow they got her behind the blocks for the 50 which really shouldn't have happened so you shouldn't really have been racing the, the blood tests didn't come back until after i'd finished they just thought it was kind of a, a stomach bug so pancreatitis pan, your pancreas produces enzymes to help digest your food i think in layman's terms if you get pancreatitis it produces too many too many it like digests itself a bit Ew. it normally affects <laughs> yeah kind of gross normally affects middle-aged overweight male alcoholics even more ew <laughs> i was clearly in the high-risk category oh, yeah. for that <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they kind of wrote it off as a stomach flu, but took blood tests. And then the day after I competed in the 50, they were like, oh, you actually had pancreatitis. Probably shouldn't have done that. So after after what's ostensibly four years preparation, but it's really at this stage, probably 12 years preparation, when you realise you can't compete in your favourite event, how does one deal with that? To be honest, I was that sick that oh, I didn't really care. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and And I think that... I just, I had to accept this turn of events. It um, all kind of played out and was so far beyond my control that I almost couldn't be upset about it. I, I was upset, but there was nothing I could do. You know, I, I was doing everything right. And it's actually, you know, I, I got up behind the blocks and I raced the, the heats and the semifinals of the 50 freestyle and, and didn't make the finals. But it's actually one of the, times in my swimming career that I'm really proud of how I handled it because everything that I could control and everything that I could do right I did do right and I fell apart afterwards but the whole time I was like okay Gatorade now you can eat you know some plain white rice try and get some sustenance in you and it was all moving forwards to the goal of competing and after it was over then I realized how awful it was and had a big cry but while I was going through it it was all about you know, the goal and the next step. And I didn't have time to feel sorry for myself. So the crazy thing about your sport, as we said right at the start, was it was the ISL? 
ISL. ISL yeah. is that typically we only see you guys, unfortunately, once every four years. And the thing that's always blown me away once I started working on swimming is the difference between success and failure, both for the athlete and the way the country views it, is remarkable. And I always go back to London and James Magnuson, who was always fantastic to me, um, dealing with him on the pool deck. And he got beaten in the 100 by was it Nathan Adrian by yeah. one one hundredth of a second. He won a silver medal in an Olympics where I don't think we won an Olympic, uh, an individual gold medal. And he was seen as a failure. And I remember thinking, wow, this bloke's come second by one one hundredth of a second and he's viewed as a failure. So we move on. The reason I say that, we move on to 2016 now, which you two had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows in the space of a week. In Rio, let's start with the high. Let's start <laughs> with the positive. Because I was watching it last night, the 4 by 100 relay, you get to swim together in an Olympic final. You were third Bronte. Off. Uh, I even wrote it down here. You were behind someone, Volmer? Dana Volmer. Dana. Dana Volmer is in the water, as is Bronte Campbell for Australia. I'm thinking things are looking a bit shaky here. <laughs> I knew the result and I was still on YouTube going, wow, Bronte's got a bit of work to do here. <laughs> yeah, so it's did. an Olympic final. You're swimming with your sister that you grew up with, that you spent all this time with, and you're there like you're smiling about it now, the chance to win an Olympic gold medal together, I would imagine life could get no sweeter. Yeah, it's huge. That's what we love about it. The the relays, um, it's always what we look forward to the most. Not only was I racing with Kate for once um, and not against her, I was also racing with two of the girls who I'd grown up with, so Britt Elmsley and, and Emma who are, McKeon, who are also in that relay. They're the same age as me, so we were in the same age group all the way up. So... Everyone there, they're like your little swimming family, and now you're going to step up together and try and achieve something great. And we were the clear favourites going in, having won the year before and being the world record holders. But um, it takes something special to win an Olympics. It's not about rankings going in. So huh. it was um, it was an incredible feeling when I turned. I, rem- I remember the race pretty well, which you don't normally do. But Talk to um, I remember I, c- I could see. I think I was going off Brit. And I could see that we were behind. I drove in, I was probably like just at Dana's um, shoulders or hips. And we were going out in the first 50 and, and always the temptation is to try catch them as quickly as possible. You want to be in front. Everyone wants to be in front. <laughs> but um, I just sort of sat there and took it easy. Like we talk about easy speed on the way out. And um, I could see her kicking and she was just going for it. And then as soon as we turned, I like turned on the burners and off I went because I knew when I saw her kicking that much on the way out, I was like, she is going to hurt and I'm going to catch her. And I just got to like take my time and do it. It's been a brilliant performance by Bronte Campbell. She's done just that. Kate stands, waits and in the water now. And then when I handed over to Kate and we're in front, I was thinking, um, even though Katie Ledecky was anchoring for the US, I was thinking there's, there's no, one, no way anyone's going to catch Kate if I can give her a lead. And when I put my hand on the wall, I turned around and we were in front. Um, you never count your chickens, but um, I, I, I knew it was going to be a good race at the very least. And Kate brought it home like you couldn't believe. Fantastic split time and world record. And there we all are. So stoked. It's, um, it's an incredible feeling. It's such a good feeling. Um, it doesn't get much better than that. So... Bront touches, you dive in, now you can take up the story. Yeah, I, I, I kind of knew, having trained with Bronte all the time, when she puts on those afterburners, there are very, very few people who can catch her and I could just see her, you know, steaming away. 
And I had this beautiful clear water to enter into, which is every swimmer's dream. You don't want to be uh, entering in, in the washing machine. And it's, it's, it's one of those races that, that I don't remember a whole lot. Um, I, I, I remember kind of turning and seeing that I was still in front and just thinking, you just have to keep going. You, you don't want to be that person who gets caught. And yeah, hit, hitting the wall with a world record time. How's this for history? The sisters are going to win gold together. The Olympic champions, world champions, world record holders. They defend their title and they break the world record. Um, and then like reaching up and, and celebrating with the girls. And we kind of stood at the, but behind the podium and we we just kind of said girls remember this you know take take a moment and all this craziness and there's so much craziness there's you know cameras flashing and people cheering and uh so many colors and sights and sounds but we said you know remember this moment because you won't have it again and it's really really special and um Britt Elmsley and I had had won um, in 2012, and we said that we just we don't I, do, I don't remember much of that. I just remember probably walking around with my hands on my face an awful lot and my mouth wide open, <laughs> um, and that's about my my memory of that. But we we were decided to slow things down, um, and, and as we raised each other's hands to to take that top spot on the podium, and you know belted out Advance Australia Fair with you know. That line, girt by sea, which is just <laughs> the most hilarious line in any national anthem, but like we sang it with so much pride. With your beautiful singing voices. With our beautiful singing, swimming voices. I think that's when we started just going for it with the national anthem. But by and they were like, all right, we're only really going to get, there's, there's not many opportunities to sing your national anthem at Olympic Games. We're just going to have to go for it. And the Americans, who are pretty loud, were looking at us like, <laughs> you can't see my face on the podcast. <laughs> they were looking at us with this full side eye, being like, "What is wrong with these people?" But we're just so happy. So, is there any because of the strange way in which your sport works? You win your Olympic gold medal. You're in the warm down pool. I've seen it, and then you're back off to the hotel. Is there any chance to celebrate? Because it's obviously it's the start of the whole thing. It's the start of what you've been trying to achieve for four years to get any celebration time or is it just the podium and that's it next thing as soon as the podium's done almost as soon as the race is done but we extended it to the podium this time you're thinking about the next race because that's <laughs> day one of an eight-day meet and you've only achieved a fraction of what your week could hold so um it gets turned off pretty quickly and then you're on to the next thing at the end of the week, you can sit back and relax. Yeah, you kind of, it, as you take that medal off, when, when you go back under the tunnel after doing the victory lap and waving to all your friends and family, as that medal comes off, you're like, okay, back to business. What do I need to do? Go warm down. And then you need to jump in an ice bath. Then you need to get a massage. So you need to go back to the village and get something to eat. And then you need to get to bed as soon as possible. How on earth do you get to sleep? That is the question. <laughs> is it? <laughs> Sleeping is hard and... Um, that Olympics was ridiculous anyway because we were starting finals at whatever, what time? Half the American 10, 10.30. Before yeah. the American TV. Yeah, so TV we didn't so, get yeah. back to the village until 3.30 in the morning that wow. morning. Which is, and then you're, you're trying to sleep in, in Rio in the middle of the day with, um, you know, no windows and no aircon, which was fun. But anyway, that's just how, how it rolled in Rio, which was, which was fine. It was a whole different thing there. But yeah, you just, you have to, you just have to be disciplined. It's, it's so easy to like, get caught up in the memories and get excited and, and dream back. But it's, it's all about discipline. It's, um, you've only done a tiny bit of your job. Just, it's, it's, 
like you have to wipe it out like it didn't happen and take a step forward again. Before we get to, and we mentioned, I mentioned James Magnuson because as I said, it's talked about as failure. Before we get to the difficulties of dealing with failure as an athlete, Kathy Freeman spoke on this podcast about dealing with pressure. She was the pinup girl for her home Olympics. Um, you two, probably more shouldered by you, Kate, going in as the world record holder into the Olympics in the 100. How did you cope with, or did you have to cope with being the favourite, being the face, being the one everyone expected to win? Well, I obviously didn't do very well with coping with it. Um, and it's, it's really difficult. And it's more difficult, I think, than people realise. Um, it's, it's something that I... You're obviously even a bit emotional talking about it now. Yeah, I am. I think that it's... I, 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 I wish I could I- explain succinctly. Um, I'm probably someone who likes to please people and I figured out very early on in my life that if I did well in the swimming pool, people were pleased with me. Um, and it was programmed into me from when I was a very young kid. You know, I, I went to my first Olympics at 16 and sport is very fickle because you are loved until your next race. And then if you don't perform well at that next race, you're forgotten about very quickly. And so for me, it wasn't about going out and doing my best or swimming a good 100 metre race the only way I could see success and the only way I, I, I would would be to win an Olympic gold medal, which is an incredibly hard thing to do and it's an incredibly rare thing. And I, I, I looked at all these people who I could make happy with this achievement or who I thought only saw value in me if I achieved that goal. And I was scared of letting them down. I wasn't, I, I was not excited to go out and race. I wasn't excited to go out and challenge myself. I was afraid. And that's not a position that you want to be in. It's, um, it's quite lonely and isolating. And I think that it's been a very liberating experience coming out the other side. Um, my memories of the race, so to give people context, I, I went in as like the red hot favourite. I was, I'd broken the world record a couple of months earlier. Um, I was 0.7 ahead on paper, blitzed through the heats, blitzed through the semifinals, um, was, you know, in lane four. And then and I was fine because the, the, there's no consequences of those. I, I knew that I could do the rounds, but it was suddenly when when everything counted, when I had this this chance to fulfill everyone's dreams and everyone's goals and my own goals as well, that suddenly I was like, can I do this? I'm not sure I can. I, I'm not sure I'm strong enough to, to hold the weight of all of this. When did you have these thoughts? It was after the semifinal. Um, and I, I had only intermittently been in contact with people and I received a message from someone um, who was a, quite a close friend and it said, oh, I've, I've booked out my boardroom so that my whole office can watch you. And I was just like, oh, shit. Like, 
what happens if I don't win? This guy has booked out his boardroom and he's got all his friends to come and watch me. And if I don't do it, he's going to look like a fool. (laughs) Um, And from there, it just kind of spiralled out of control. Hate has the fastest time in the world. Bronte, the second fastest. And it's funny. It's been a very liberating experience because I I, I knew... uh, I wish I could take the first 11 seconds of that race back because I just, all I did was I, I, I went out too hard. That first 25, I was too stiff and I used up just too much glycogen, too much of my sprint energy, which doesn't give you the payoff in the back end. And if I could just have those first 11 seconds back, I would be fine. Pat Campbell, C1 in lane four. Bronte in lane two. In between them is Manuel of the USA. She's the threat at the moment. But I knew when I when I put my feet on the wall for the 50 metres to go that it was going to be a really long way back. You were comfortably in front at that point, though. Yeah, but you know. She <laughs> yeah, was in front. It wasn't, it wasn't a comfortable in front. There's, as we were talking before, it's, it's easy speed on the way out. And you don't want to, you want to be going fast, but you don't want to be trying. And as soon as you know you're trying on the way out... You know, you don't, you don't know you've lost the race, but you know that it's going to be a fight to get back. Oof. And how's your race going at this point, Bron? Um, so I was out in lane two. Because I think you, you were the uh, fastest two times going in, I think, weren't you? Probably. I mean, my time was from um, World Champs yep. the year before. Okay. And maybe one other person had gone faster than that. But I'm not sure. I was, I was pretty much... I was one of the fastest officially from a year before going in. But... um. Pretty much soon after Kazan, which is when I did that time, I got hip injury in the mm. in the November, and then that January I got shoulder injury, which saw me what do like three k a session, which is just it's not enough. I couldn't train for like eight months. <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was tough because I, I think that actually Bronte succeeded. She she executed the best race she possibly could have and got fourth in that Olympic Games. And for her, that was like a gold medal to, to stand up. And you, you didn't hear that Bronte was injured. You didn't hear anything because no. she, she kept it to herself. And it was, the, there's, there's nothing more frustrating than wanting to achieve something and working for it and not being able to and for your body to have failed you. It's, it's this soul crushing and, and, and then you're living with pain all the time you're in constant pain um and and you know that when you get in the swimming pool it's going to make it worse but you have you have to because you've, you've got your lifelong dream coming up but you know that by the time the two hours is up if you make it through the two hours you're going to be in eight out of ten pain and you're going to have to go and lie down in bed and put ice packs on and uh, you know take more anti-inflammatories than is is good for the human body and then you're going to have to get up the next morning and you're going to have to do that again. So how was that for you, Bronte, going through that? At the time, it was um, it was enormously frustrating. All you want to do is, like, not be sad. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird race because... I knew I wasn't going to be at my best. I'm, um, I can train pretty hard. That's, that's what I've been good at for my whole swimming career. So when I stand up behind the blocks 
and you can look back at the work and then you just back yourself 100 percent. that's that's how i love to race and i love racing so i love standing up behind the blocks and you just go all right like bring it on let's see what we can do here let's see what everyone's got let's all give it to each other and then at the end there's there's someone who's come first and there's someone who's come eighth and that's mm. that's how it works but standing up behind the blocks it was a it was a different feeling trying to back yourself when you know that you haven't done the work and you know that you couldn't have done the work and it's so such a frustrating place to be but um the relay was incredible for me because it was a faster time than I thought it could have gone for me it was even just to make the Olympic team was a big deal because I got that injury two months before the trials and then to be on the team was incredible and to be up behind the blocks was incredible but at the same time, you, you are aware that everyone has this expectation that you're going to be swimming 52-5. Hmm. And you know you haven't done the work for it. You just know you're not at that level. But you have to make yourself step up to the level that you can be to compete. So it was horrible. <laughs> so what those tears in your eyes as you're describing that, does that come from looking back at the pain or that you couldn't do what you wanted to do or that you... But where does that emotion come from? That's interesting. It's probably looking back at it because then in the time you're um you're frustrated and there's definitely some some meltdowns along the way. But um, it just comes from I guess it's just the whole emotion of it because it's a big thing. This is everything you've ever dreamt of, and then to be throttled in the last little bit mm. and there's not there's no regret there, but um there's. There's a lot of, yeah, you're, you're in a lot of pain all the time. There's a lot of what if, like, oh, what if that shoulder injury hadn't happened? Or what if we'd figured out a way to deal with it better? Or, or what if that had happened a year later? Or what if 2015 had been 2016? Mm. But that's what's so good about sport is that it's so full of what ifs and there's good ones as well as bad ones. So it's, it's, it's not all bad. I think, I think the emotion comes into it because it's, like, it's not over for me. I'm still doing the injury thing, so. Bronte does more rehab exercises than is possible. For her to make it through to Commonwealth Games was a mammoth achievement. And then to stand up and, and swim the time that she did, that 52-2, and to, to win the gold medal was, I, I, I look at the race and her reaction afterwards and it's, it's sheer joy like there's there's just joy and elation and and that smile it, it it melts your heart and for me watching Bronte struggle with it day in and day out and she never complains like you, you never hear her complain um and she does an extra half an hour of physio exercises more on top of anyone else before every session we do. So that adds up to, you know, another four or five hours of, mm. of exercises a week just to maintain an acceptable level of pain in her body. This isn't to get herself pain-free. This is just to manage the pain and the injuries that, that she has. And, and it's an ongoing thing. And I think it's, it's a constant battle because you're in this pain but you're striving to do something that, that you love and the two are at war with each other. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had my fair share well, of injuries in the past. Well, because it's not like Kate's injury-free. I mean, hip surgery, shoulder surgery, neck issues. It's, um, 
She's been through the lot as well. It's just that mine's a little bit but more lingering. Why? <laughs> it's already done it. I need to change the battery in a sec, which is a chance for you to have another fantail in a sec. But why? Why keep doing that to your body? Like, why not just give it away and say, I've got an Olympic gold medal, I've achieved beyond what any normal human would ever think is possible? I'm not done yet. But, but why not? <laughs> Like, why, why would you continue to put yourself through that? That is a very good question. About November of, um, not last year now, but November of 2017, just before Com Games was coming up, I was very much asking myself that. Why am I doing this? I'm, like, breaking my back just to stand still. Like, I'm not getting better. I'm getting progressively worse and I'm working so much harder. But then... I don't know, there was this, the Kate was there for that session, this like meltdown session, um, where I was just doing my exercises like, this is ridiculous, I cannot believe I'm doing this, and I know I'm gonna get in the pool in a little while, and I'm gonna be sore and slow, like why am I here? I'm not gonna be, I've, I've always wanted to train and get better, and I've always wanted to be like, there's always things I can improve on, and I wanted, I'm basically chasing perfection. And that's, that's one of the things that really motivates me is chasing that perfection, trying to be the best you possibly can be. But here I was working so hard and just being so bad at what I was doing. So um, why would you keep doing it is a good question. And mm. I think- What's the good answer? It's still, it's still just the dream of it. And it's still, there's, you've got this huge self doubt. Will my body be able to do this anymore? And then, You've got a belief that there's always a way. That's that's there's always a way. There's a, there's a different way of doing things, but there's there's always got to be a way, and you've always got to be a little bit more creative. Um, I think maybe it's just pure stubbornness, but <laughs> that just seems like the worst way to get out of the sport ever is to be defeated by your own body. Like that's not okay. There's got to be a way to make this work. There always is. Ever there's a solution somewhere. You just got to find out what it is. And um, once switched to that mindset and actually ended up finding some exercises that worked pretty well and then got the big block of training done and I couldn't believe it when that all came together at Com Games. I still don't really know how that race ended up how it was because that, was, that race was two years of struggling to find that race. So it was like such a big deal for me. Stand by, I'm gonna change our batteries. Hang on. I'm gonna have a fantail. That's the end of Kate and Bronte Campbell part A, but don't worry, there's a lot more to come in part B. Enjoy it. Listener.